the Harlem Magazine. Juanita, are you there? Absolutely. Okay, great. For some reason, I couldn't get you on earlier, but I'm not too sure what happened. But nevertheless, this is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you're listening via the Internet, you can type your question, questions in in the comment box. You can also call and listen by dialing on your phone, 516-531-9540. And if you want to ask a question after you're connected, please press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We're also available on about seven different podcast platforms. And lastly, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Our first guest is Juanita Bisbee Britton, owner of the Anacostia Art Boutique and Senior Vice President of Paradise Busy Bee, a company that operates retail stores and food operations at National Airport. Today, we'll talk about the task of reopening of the Anacostia Art Boutique in Washington, D.C., and behind-the-scenes calculations that led to the closing of her airport stores because of the pandemic. Hello, Juanita. How are you doing today? I'm excellent. I'm just feeling blessed to be able to chat with you. I've lost uh, several friends and relatives uh, through the last year, so I'm just feeling blessed every day. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a year, too, where we've lost um, – a lot of friends, and in particular, a lot of close friends to Porter Harlem Magazine and the Porter Harlem Gambian Education Partnership. And if you were looking at Porter Harlem Magazine of late, you know, I'm almost feeling like we have been running obituaries. So this hasn't been a normal year this year. And they, they haven't, and these are people who have, died, who have not died of COVID either. So it has, it has been a challenging year in many ways. But can I have you to turn out the turn down the noise in the background a little bit? Yes, it's down. Okay. Yeah, I still can hear a little bit. Yeah, I still can hear much. Okay, I'm I'm good now. I should be a lot better now. Okay. Well, you know, well, those people know that you had your first busy B uh, gift show back in 1990. Of course, the 2021 show didn't happen because of the pandemic. Can you walk us through how that made you feel and how you shared the news to all the vendors who have been planning for for the event for months, maybe even a year? Yep. Well, you, you, you all start at the very end. You're right. People do, artisans, entrepreneurs, and uh, startup businesses plan, um, plan them. They, they plan a year in advance to be a part of the show. I started the show in 1990 after attending a, a local show in Washington, D.C., and in the same year going to Brixton in London and seeing how the artisans and black businesses get together and promote themselves, and then their family members and community members come and shop. And uh, gosh, I said, what an opportunity this could be if I could uh, pull something off with the artisans and designers and many of the people that I've actually met around the country to come to Washington and, and be present at least around, you know, Christmas, the time where it seems that people have a little bit more disposable income. So we're 20, we're 29 years um, later and preparing for the 30th anniversary, I'd made an agreement with a car dealership. I was actually giving away a Kia Sportage for the 30th annual event, as well as um, I uh, every year I brought artisans in from one content, one one country on on the African continent, and I sponsored them for two whole weekends to be a part of my show. I've done that for the last 28 years. And uh, prepared, got we got some folk ready for that, and um, I always set aside a space for startup businesses. And so, um, after you know, we just just knew this COVID thing would be over midsummer, and when it wasn't, uh, several of the artisans began to be in touch and asked me what I thought I would be able to do to make sure that we had some type of show. 
And um, I was also um, throughout the year reeling from the fact that I had um, uh, 20 plus airport stores in multiple airports and that they were all shut down just from one day open to all shut down. Um, so you had to deal with both prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 230 employees on that side and then over 170 artisans that that do the show over the five weekends on the other side. So the pressure just to be in the middle of all of those businesses, families, um, to, to I was a center of how they made things happen in a big way. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. This just so happened. I uh, was able to just through talking and understanding. Um, first of all, just getting through the fact that will people even come outside of their home? You know, we went through a period, as everyone knows, where people just didn't even leave their home. They there was many people were stuck. I actually never felt stuck. I'd always, believe it or not, I continued to move as if there was no COVID, um, masks, and I was masked up all the time and just never really missed a beat um, as far as my movement and my thoughts um, because I was working through a deep a deep depression of, you know, so many people counting on me and me not being able to deliver even an idea. And um, I got a chance to see people just, you know, develop out of um, this COVID and pivot from one thing to the next, and it just came out in me that, you know, I've been here before. I I know how to do this. So I got in touch with over 30 artisans and um, began to schedule an outside marketplace. This is in June. I said, let's let's see if we can, you know, snag some people to come out and at least come and shop with you and, and see you and spend a little money and help help the business out a little and and you know people are missing shea butter they're missing their soap sisters want a new pair of earrings you know brother wants a cultural t-shirt and we were of course going through the whole phase of the um uh all the all the things happening around the country around the black lives matter activity so that was upon us as well that depressed some encouraged others and invigorated many um, and even it even it even even it even uh, started a whole new economy. Um, just 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 anything Black Lives Matter, people just wanted to wear it and have it. So um, and they needed to know where to come and get it. So I started a small marketplace around my home, just to try to be involved and, and try to help other artisans and myself stay in the game. So that was part of and your adapting. So that was part of your adapting to the situation. Com- completely adapting. Yeah, definitely adapting to the situation. And um, from that, uh, as the year grew, I, you know, I worked with the city on permits. Could I, could I, could I pivot my show to an outdoor show? Could I, um, ha- have a have a you know start off. Can I do a modified show uh, with less less people? Well, if if you have less people, then you're going to have less customers. If you're going to have less less artisans, then it's not going to pay for itself. So there were just exactly. so many aspects to modifying it um, um, that it just was not worth worth it. And it turns out if I'd gone through all of that and got it approved and and it was probably going to happen, it turned out, of course, during the holiday season, we were, we were, everybody was shut down again because the numbers were back up. So uh, I uh, got, went to the city and um, worked on a special permit that took me through understanding how to run a business that was COVID safe. And, uh, you know, just did the whole six feet apart thing and the special N95 masks and uh, staff to count people coming in and out and, you know, reopened the Anacostia Art Gallery and Boutique uh, 2.0 with the work of over 45 artisans that actually participate in the Benny B show. 
Okay, let's talk, about that in, that, let's talk about that mm-hmm. in one second. But let's cap this right. off. And that, you know, one thing I want to really capture for our listeners and for those who want to be in business or who are in business, that the idea of what you as an individual business person have to do to make something work for all of us to enjoy is more than you just waking up in the morning and putting on your makeup. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> and we know you always look good. So it's more than just that, right? Yeah. So um, what, what specifically, how would you like me to start off with that? Well, I'm just saying that, that you captured it already, that you captured that you really had to go through a lot of uh, internal anguish and, and a lot of decision-making and, 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 and a lot of extra work just end up finding out that we couldn't have a show. Uh, in 2020, in December 2020. Yeah, there there were many many iterations of how could we do it, and and if I could change the venue, get a bigger venue, um, and look like I'd take one step to a yes, and you you be hurry up to wait, and then um, you get a no. And again, it's it's so funny how how God works and how things work out because if I'd gotten a yes and made all the expenditures that it takes to produce the show. And we got a week before, um, I mean, we were going to go from five weekends. This show usually kicks off Black Friday all the way through Christmas Eve every weekend, two to three days every weekend. And I was going to collapse it into one four-day show. And if that was going to happen, I did all the things that it takes to put that together and even probably invest more because I knew I'd have to work to convince people that it would be worth it to turn out that it, it couldn't happen at all because everything was shut down. So, so that was just some, some good work of God under the circumstances. Yeah, well, I guess you expressed that well, and I want to go to the next question, and that is the actual opening of the Anacostia Art Gallery today, February 4th, and ask how was today, and what was your best customer interaction? Well, you know, let me let me say back up just a little to say that over the holiday season again, uh over 40 of the artisans made product and brought product so that I could open up the Anacostia Art Gallery and it represents affects a, 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 a very in a very uh similar way to customers all of the products or many of the products that were at the show. So whereas the artisans were not there, you couldn't walk down these aisles and aisles of artisans and and vendors and businesses, but you could come into a a five to six room facility and see all the products. And I just worked hard to deliver some really good customer service like they would have received if they were at the, the show itself. So that that's one great thing. So, Today, we were open right up through New Year's Eve. Great, great event, great customer base. But then, of course, um, closed for a month just to uh, evaluate, go over numbers, and just, you know, quite frankly, see if it's all worth it. Because when you sell other artisans' work and it's not yours, it's only a portion that is a very small profit that you can make to sustain the business so you've got to do really well and sell a lot of folks products especially exactly. if you're in the business like I, like I am where I'm representing people I don't I'm not the one that makes it I go and get it and 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 market it and and put a price point on it where the artisan gets paid for their you know ingenious work and I get uh, a fraction of that for for being able to bring people to buy it so Today, uh, Thursday, February 4th, was the opening uh, for the year, and I just kind of say I'm open from today through New Year's Eve at the end of the year. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how I put it. That's some long thinking, but go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, people are just so not used to me being the person that is on the front line actually selling. So they kind of thought it was a little, a little fun for me and a little, little thing I was doing, but no, the Anacostia Art Gallery and Boutique uh, is open full time now with 
with me as the curator and the operator, and I've got some young people from the neighborhood that I'm teaching the skill on um, customer service and art, art, art from art history to black culture. You know, I mean, when you have to teach people what Sankofa means, you know, you're going back to roots. And so I really love it because, I mean, to be able to expose Sankofa and Jinyame and what the third eye means and literally what, you know, I ran into a person today that literally, a, a young person, they really didn't know what red, black, and green meant. They just had no clue what those colors meant to black people. So I went through a whole piece on, on that. They thought it was, uh, they liked my boots. I have some red, black, and green boots, and they thought they, thought they were holiday boots. <laughs> they thought they were my Christmas boots. So, so in anyway, doing your work, you also educate so it also yeah. in, in teaching is also in doing your business. You're educating the next generation. That that's a wonderful. Yeah, that must be a wonderful feeling. That must be a I, wonderful it feeling. Is. It is absolutely wonderful feeling. And then of course after after all that teaching, certainly she wanted a pair of Sankofa earrings, some Jinyami earrings, and you know, and she bought some Jinyami stamps. And so just it it worked out beautifully. So, so what was um, one of your what was one of your best customers? Yeah. What was one of your best customer interactions today? Well, my best, I had some, I, well, I had models. I did a photo shoot and all of that. But my best customer interaction, believe it or not, was an online customer that actually just came through a very near-death experience of having a kidney transplant. And um, she came on, you know, I was online on three different Facebooks for two hours today, and she was with me the entire two hours and just engaged, engaged me so that I could engage and give more information to the customers. It was a wonderful experience. And then, of course, she she actually shopped and made the day for the entire gallery, one customer. Wow. With what she purchased from being online for two hours with us. And just, I mean, she was just hungry for some great things and just, I guess, feeling the grace of God because, again, she just, her life just got saved, um, you know, just by her getting a new kidney. So it was a, it was a, that was a wonderful day. And then I had four, four customers that had never been to Busy Bee at our, to our show over at Shiloh Baptist Church and had never met me and never had been to the gallery before. So um, these, these, these three sisters and one brother actually said they're going to come and bring someone back on Saturday. All, all four of those individuals said that that would be the case. So that, that, it, it was a blessed day uh, all around for me. So that was the beauty side of your very hard work, but in all, and many people do the beauty in person and online. Some people come online, come come in, come into the location uh, in Southeast Washington, and they have to be COVID protected. So, what type of COVID safety protocols have you employed at the art gallery? Yes, well, I will say that most of my customer base uh, still today is coming into the gallery. Uh, because, you know, people still go to the grocery store, they still go to the drugstore, so they can take a minute and pop in over to the Anacostia Art Gallery and get some of the things that they need from the shea butters that are by their favorite black folks. They get come get greeting cards. Many of the things that they go stop into the general kind of store for, they can come over to the gallery. So on the COVID, uh, COVID protocol, we take a temperature, we have hand sanitizer, we uh, practice, uh, I have markers on the floor that make you stay six feet apart, and um, by the measurements of the property, the indoor area where the gallery is, uh, um, 11 people can be in the facility at one time. So, okay. um, yeah, I would I would love to have just ten customers all at once. It's not that doggone busy. So <laughs> I'd love to have eleven, but but legally I can have up to eleven persons at once, and that's including me and my one or two other staff people. 
So yeah, so um, we just we just take precautions and we, you know, I open my gallery every day with a prayer. Whatever my first customer is, I bring my one or two other employees and we hold hands and say a prayer to get a blessing for that day. Yeah, great. Well, you know, on the business side, um, as I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned earlier to you offline, but we've done interviews with Zawadi on U Street, and they have put more emphasis on online sales. And I found, and she found it challenging to write descriptions for each item, which is necessary when you sell items online. And Nisi's Boutique in Mount Rainier had the challenge of scheduling customers to come in the store. Like you, she has a number of people that can be in the store at one time. You can have up to 11. She was doing one. I don't know what she's doing now. And there's a store in Kenya called Mwatiki Art Gallery. They also began relying more on online sales. So you mentioned before this episode, or before this episode, that you have been spending learning more new tasks. Can you learn some of those new tasks you've learned to adapt to selling in this new environment? Mm, well... I think some of them you were mentioning earlier, just to refresh your memory, was uh, photography. Um, oh my! Oh my! Oh my goodness! Oh. The well, I think so I think it's so down. important because sometimes people think that you are a business and all you did was wake up in the morning and say, "Hey, come on in." Oh my goodness! Yes. Well. Oh gosh! Just a, a, you you all cannot imagine the level of um, the level of tenacity it takes to, um, you know, come from a business where you have 230 employees and, and you, you, you know, I've, I've always, I've been working since I was 10 years old, not afraid to work, not afraid to push my sleeves up and actually ring that cash register and stand on my feet for 10 hours. But I thank God that I had not did that in 20 years. Um, and and we all get older. Out, Yes, yes, but but now how much younger I am becoming just based on the fact that I am now um, having to uh, apply so many of the skills that I've, you know, learned and, and used over the years or even as some people do, I go to YouTube and learn how to do it, then I just do it. For example, um, for my website, of course, everything has to be photographed and it has to be photographed with a uh, white background. Well, I went and bought a whole photography set, a photography box, the backdrop, and um, and the photography table. And now people are coming to me to photograph to take pictures of their product because I take such great um, photography. So I um, I set aside two hours every day to work on that aspect of what my tasks are to get my site up, as well as other people's. Uh, task uh, other people's uh, photographs up. Um, I literally learned uh, this is not no joke. I literally learned how to wash a window professionally. You know, they don't just use Windex. I mean, yes, I got on the ladder and ordered some special window washing um, products and learned how to get windows squeaky clean. And so, um, that was important. I had to actually learn how to. Um, um, I, I started back. Um, uh, gosh, this is this is this is something. But I was actually um, having to do uh, interior design. Now I, I can decorate, but interior design is a, is another technique where you have to convince people that what you put together will work for them. So there's a special technique in, in knowing how to communicate to people when you are helping them decorate their home. And so, of course, at the Anacostia Art Gallery, I have a whole home decor section. And um, you have to learn how to, to slip into a, a more um, relaxed mode. I'm a very excitable, very, um, some could even say pushy, but I've learned to calm my spirit down and to let other people um, guide me so that I can understand what it is they want. And that is also part of a selling technique that, you know, I've never had to practice because it it's always was a done deal for me. So I've learned how to, you know, back up and just, you know, go more into 
um, you know, calming my spirit so that a person can open up so I'll know exactly what they want. So um, COVID has, you know, uh, the, the year of COVID has, it taught me a lot of lessons, and I've, you know, taken on a lot of duties. In fact, um, I spent uh, two days uh, at Sotheby's with the Social Sotheby's consultant in learning how to age, how to look and find the age of African artifacts. Now, certainly, it takes longer to 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 be an expert, but I certainly know how to look at art and and determine if art is what they call tourist art, which is beautiful art that comes from a culture, but it, it, it might have just been made uh, four months ago and dirtied in some mud and uh, water and dirt to make it look old versus um, something that is actually old and considered antique. So That's very that interesting. is a special Skill. Yeah, it's a very special skill because I'm in the business of selling antiques and art African artifacts. So I was lucky to have the lessons from a person that uh, is a is a advised or or is a scout for Sotheby's out of New York. Um, so you know, I, I just it's, it's so many things that um, that that I've just learned to do and have been just naturally started, you know, doing it. In fact, um, I'm actually a, a, a real expert. It's interesting you, you say that I'm a, I've gotten to be very good at writing the descriptions for products. And, yeah, that's uh, what I was going to ask you about because that was one of the challenges that uh, Irina Zawise was telling me. She was saying, you know, she never really thought that, it took such an effort just to write something like she had someone else take the pictures for, so you're taking a picture for yourself, but it takes such an effort to write just each and every description for each and every product. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You got to write it. But you know, I, 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 I guess I, <clears throat> I think I have a lot to say about everything. So that was not a problem for me. And uh, I'm going I'm to reach out to Irene and just tell her I can, I can work it out with her because I can, I can, I can write, but, but, but she's right. You've got to, you've got to, you got to know a little bit about the history and you got to be real authentic when you share some information. I mean, you really have to have to have, or you'll be dealing with a lot of returns if you don't know what to say and what it truly is. So she was right that that is a task, but certainly not a task that's not attainable. Right. Let's switch a little bit to your stores at the airport. Uh, before the show, also, you mentioned that there was a difference between hub and destination airports. Can you explain the yeah. difference and how and how the difference affects in port in airport store traffic? Certainly. So, um, I have a, a. I'll just say, give you use Dallas, use National as an example. I the plethora of my businesses over 15 stores, you know, from books from Brooks Brothers to um, Swarovski uh, to um, newsstands to two bars, 15 operations do very well under normal settings because DCA um, Airport, which we call National Airport, um, um, hosts. Um, tourists that come through town, tourists and tourists first, first, and then government workers second, and then business people third. And so um, we thrive on tourism. We've got, you know, 12 Smithsonian Institution Museums uh, that thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to. We've got, of course, all our monuments. And we we just keep I mean with the I mean one at one point the spy museum just everybody was coming to that I mean when they opened up the World War II memorial just tons and tons of people came to that and continue to come to that so there's so many things that people come to Washington to under the under the guise of tourism and so um, Washington is a tourist airport meaning. People come to Washington to become as tourists. They shop 
on their way out of the airport, and they certainly do most of the shopping going back home and waiting outside their gate, which means that they, you know, tend to shop. Um, uh, The other type of airport, there there are several types, but the other type of airport that is juxtaposed to mine is an airport that is what you call a hub airport, where where many airlines hub at that particular airport, which means a person, all the connecting flights come through that particular town to to go back off to their destination. And so um, many, the people that are flying, the way that they've chopped the flights up, they're rarely, there aren't that many nines. Many airlines go straight, go to the hub, and then they farm out that flight from the hub to the destination. They go to the hub so they can have a full plane going to the destination. So people at hub airports get all that middle traffic, and they're they're doing they they may be only down sixty percent at a at a hub airport, where I'm down ninety eight percent at my airport. I mean ninety eight percent. You have a lot. You have a lot less travelers than a hub airport. Oh, that's that's all the that's all the travelers. Yeah, that's all the travel. You're down if your sales are down ninety eight percent, you are you are you have you have no business hardly. It may just be you and your staff buying gum and candy at this point. You know, <laughs> it just may be that. So yeah, that's the difference between a hub and a destination airport. And so um for example Fort Fort Lauderdale or in Miami, they're they're it just so happens that Miami, though, is a hub because so many people go to Miami. They stop in Miami, and then they're on off to South America. So that's what makes that a twofer airport, what they call a twofer. You got tourism on one side, and then, of course, you have all the people that are traveling to South America, and they stop and um, and and then they keep it moving. They get on their flight, and they go off to their destination mm-hmm. and that affects your business simply because if you are at a Ooh. hub airport you probably will still be open if you're at a destination airport there's a good chance that you'll be that you're closed and that's exactly the case the, the good chance and the fact is is that my stores are closed i have a couple of stores to open for a couple of hours a day other than that we're flat out of business and don't know which way we're going and so, how, what happened to your employees, and what 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 is the status of the stores in now? Well, all my stores are just the the uh, parent companies are are understanding exactly what is uh, going down, and so um, we're just trying to just trying to hold on. We're just trying to you know hold on to 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 see when the country's going to, you know, when people are going to start traveling again and, and they come back. And so you said they're trying to hold on. People Are people trying to foreclose on the stores itself, take the items back, or are they just in a freeze? No, it's, it's a freeze. And the stores that are open are open not full hours of the day. And so because everybody is in this situation, uh, for example, my you know my Brooks Brothers clothes. I just sent a whole a whole pallet of clothes back because you know we're in a new season. Because some some you know some stores they they have products online that were online last year, so they they can't stop that. They just have to keep keep it flowing. They you know we get don't know on the drop of a hat when we're going to open. We could. You know, the weather could be good, and we decide we're going to rock and roll in March. Well, then we got to be ready. So you're actually staying on the ready the whole time. And so what happened to the employees? Do you all keep in touch with them, or do you expect them to have gone to another job, or they're just on unemployment and no one knows what's next? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> I all wonder how that works. I wonder how that would feel being an employee and getting a note from your former or your former employee employer and you're out looking for a job. I wonder how that would feel. I, I can't imagine, but 
you know, people are just trying their best. Okay. So how do these store closures affect you as an entrepreneur, personally? How does it affect you as, as an entrepreneur? Well, I mean, it completely affects me. I, I tell everybody, I, I go to bed crying almost every night, and I just, you know, wake up whole. I just wake up knowing I got to keep pushing for the next day because uh, it's um, it's uh, to to the highest to the to the highest denominator is a, a devastating financially to go from being in full business to being completely shut down, and then to being in business where you may be making two percent of of what you've made, and 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 to to you know you just can't pack your your bags up and say I'm out of here. You have to go through what it takes to get to the other side. You just can't give up. So devastated interpersonally, financially, in every way, and uh, just pivoting to to new heights and learning new things so I can make it through, and just looking forward. I don't ever want to. Get you know nothing will be the same as it was uh, pre-COVID. So I'm just excited about what the future has as we pull up out of COVID and and apply some of these lessons that I've learned. So you've been a so before an entrepreneur, you've been an employee with other people, and you've had your bouts like everybody else of looking for a job and having lost a job or for whatever reason and getting back into another job. So how do you relate uh, those periods of being an employee and being in limbo to being an entrepreneur and being in limbo? Are they similar? Are they different? Yeah, I'd say, uh, let me think. Uh, I I can't quite, I'm, I'm not, they're different. It's different. Things are different. It's different. Okay. And can, is there any way you can think that it is different or any way they are the same? Um, no, I can't. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just going to, everything is just going to be different. I, I just, I mean, we can't, I mean, all the lessons learned, you, you, you know, you got to do some things differently. That's, that's just how I look at the whole thing is that I don't want to do anything the same way anymore because it's such it's such a it's such it's such a um it's so wrenching. It's it's it, 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 it's it's like being put through a, a ringer. No, I mean so, no, I mean is there a difference between you going through uncertainty being a, an employer versus being an employee? Uh, I, like I said, um, I, I'm in the same boat as as, as an employee, uh, employer and employee. It's for me. Uh, we all have been, you know. I'm I'm devastated. They're devastated. We're leaning on each other. In fact, my employees is is so interesting. The people that employed under that were employed with me are looking to me for you know help. And they just can't imagine that we're in the same boat. And I have had to show them how, I mean, I gave away over 90 um, Thanksgiving baskets just because I knew that maybe I was all a little better off. But, you know, at, at this point, it's, it's, we're, 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 it isn't much different. I mean, the only difference is that I'm able to drive, the bus because I have to come up with answers and I've got to come up with what to do next and how to try to make things successful and maybe how to try to bring some things back in focus. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And, and the responsibility is on me to do that. And, um, and again, <clears throat> I've had, you know, all kinds of uh, team meetings with my management team, with some of the, you know, um, hourly waged employees and just, you know, understanding where they are, how they're doing, what they're doing, how they're making it through, and uh, just trying to stay as family-oriented for as a business as I can. Okay. Mm-hmm. So lastly, before we go, um, how do you expect to increase the minimum wage to $15 by 2026 to, to affect you? If we get, if, mm-hmm. if the minimum wage goes to 20. 
fifteen dollars in twenty twenty six? Well, um, believe it or not, uh, uh, some I have a portion of my employees already because of the competitive nature of uh, trying to hold on to uh, my I, I keep my attrition low, so the pay at my locations is already between twelve and fifteen dollars. And but but starting out, people were coming in at twelve. And if you pay anything less than that in my particular business, you're not going to hold on to your employees uh, very long. So what it means for really big businesses is that they have to, you know, give up some of them that billion dollar profit to 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 make it because you know these companies, you know, you hear about companies um, they only made you know a uh, hundred million versus you know, 125 million last year. Well, my God. And, you know, they got, you know, employees that are making, you know, 10 and $12 an hour. That's just, that's awful. Yeah. But how about small companies though? But, but the big issue, but the big issue often has been smaller companies saying that they're going to have a harder time than say the larger companies. So have your company of, so have your company have already made adjustments or planning to make adjustments to uh, meet what could be the law in 2026? Well, what it is is everybody adjusted that. So at out at out at the airport, um, we had already agreed to a living wage um, increase. We were at 15 before it became a law. We we were already in. We were already moving toward. That And so what we do is they may charge a little less rent and we may make a little less profit, but um, people have got to have a living wage. So everybody has to adjust. And for a small business, hey, just just like I told you, I have to pull my my sleeves up. Um, Maybe it's going to be some business owners working a little harder or making less profit. That's that's the only way I can that's the only way I can look at it because the people who are working they've got to you know they got to have a living wage I can't I mean I, I, I we can't um, you know a lot of people say well you know a lot of people didn't go to college and they should have prepared themselves and but no people are not supposed to work forty hour weeks and, and can't ha- can't have a living wage it's not. It's not humane. Yeah, one of our interviewers, one of our, one of our interviews in the rest, rest, restaurant industry, he was saying that what he'll end up doing oh. is having one employee do two of the jobs, for instance, or that yeah. they're also auto, or they're also automating, so they will end up not hiring a, another person. How about it? There you go. That's 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 one of the ways that. And that that's where it's going anyway. I mean, a lot of the things are going that way anyway. So people and businesses need to retool themselves all the way around. Okay. People need to get more educated on what to do, and, and some businesses need to get smarter about how they run their business. Okay. So before we go, we know the address, I think, is uh, busybeeinternational.com. Uh, well, which address? for the uh, art gallery. Well, okay, so the website is anacostiaartgallery.com, and that's A-N-A-C-O-S-T-I-A-A-R-T-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y.com, and we're located at 119 Raleigh Street, Southeast Washington, D.C., 20032. And, of course, you can text me or call 202-550-7060. And we're open Thursdays through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we're going to be open those hours all the way up through New Year's Eve. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Juanita, for your time. I know it's 45 minutes of a very busy opening day, and and uh, of course, of course, people can always contact us, and we'll always be glad to give out Juanita's business information. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And our next guest is here, and so Juanita, we're gonna take a short break, 
And we're going to talk to uh, our representative from D.C. next. So, again, thanks a lot, Juanita. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye. So we're going to take a break here, a short break here. Okay, so we're back with our next guest. Uh, welcome to welcome back to Portal Hollow Talk Radio, our guest. Um, again, to our guests, I mean to our listeners, you can also visit portalhollow.net and click Portal Hollow Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. So, um, Representative Owolewa, are you here? Yes, I am here. Thank you for having me. And I hope I didn't butcher your name. I've been trying to practice it all day. Now you you did pretty good. My name is Dr. Oye Owolewa. Owolewa. Yep, you're there. Okay, I'm going to try my best. Okay, so uh, Dr. Owolewa is a doctor of pharmacy, and he earlier represented one of D.C.'s most challenged neighborhoods in 2020 with more than 80% of the vote. D.C. voters chose the Nigerian-born Democrat to the shadow position. Electing shadow representatives is often a path towards statehood and has been an American practice since 1796. Uh, Welcome to Port Harlem Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Just a little bit of a correction. My parents were born in Nigeria. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, so I'm a second-generation Nigerian-American. Gotcha. Thanks for the correction. So even though your position is now recognized by the U.S. Congress as an actual position in Congress, and even Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton has limited powers, you took on this job. So since your election was, uh, since your election, what is the most significant thing you have been involved in and accomplished? Thank you for that question. I think just the fair fact, the mere fact that a second generation Nigerian American black man in the United States is the U.S. representative for D.C. speaks volumes. I've been able to network with a lot of organizations that have been involved in the fight for D.C. statehood. And I also want to also bring a lot of issues that are often overlooked, especially by our Congress, like the lack of investment in our black communities, the fact that we don't have a lot of healthcare providers in lawmaking capacity to help affect our healthcare system, how we're going to be able to, once D.C. becomes a state, really be able to challenge the status quo, make this country much fairer for the average. Okay. And so since you've been elected, have you been, you've been meeting, I guess you've been meeting these people and explaining to them these situations. Has there been one meeting or one situation that you found to be the most productive? Absolutely. I cherish all of my interactions, but there was definitely a lot of opportunity, especially in Southeast Washington, D.C., to really educate about the importance of statehood. Traditionally, the fight for statehood is seen by most people as just the avoiding representation. However, D.C. statehood affects every aspect of our life in D.C. For example, when the COVID stimulus plan was enacted by Congress, D.C. received less than 50% of the resources compared to Maryland, Virginia, and every other state. Most recently, on January 6th, the fact that D.C. residents don't control our National Guard came to the forefront because there was a mob that attacked our capital, and we didn't have control of our resources to prevent that from happening. So the fact that we're able to speak on tangible... And so you've been spending a lot of your time teaching uh, D.C. residents about the importance of statehood or outsiders? Both. So the interesting thing about me being the U.S. representative is that my story doesn't begin in Washington, D.C. Like I mentioned before, I was born and raised in Roxbury, Massachusetts, the inner city of Boston. I've also, my parents were raised in Nigeria. There are a lot of people who are paying attention to my run for office that never really knew about the dynamics of D.C., the fact that we're the only developed country that denies the residents of this nation's capital voting representation. Yeah, let's talk about that a bit, because your parents' homeland is Nigeria, and Abuja is the capital territory. 
So even in Nigeria, where people often think the African countries are being less democratic, it also allows the, the citizens of Abuja to have a seat in the national office, in the national uh, legislature. So when you first heard or first learned of those dynamics between the U.S. and, say, Nigeria, what went through your head about the thoughts that America being the leader in democracy and the export of democracy? I love how you bring that up because you always hear, you know, Americans, especially our elected officials, going to other countries, trying nations, exactly. telling other countries, you need to run things democratically. Yet here in D.C. and here in the States, D.C. residents are being neglected, the very thing that we're preaching overseas. And let's compare D.C. to Wyoming and Vermont. Wyoming has 570,000 residents, 92% white, 1.5% black. Vermont has 630,000 residents, 93% white, 1.5% black. D.C has 710,000 residents, 47% black. The residents of D.C. look more like the ones in Vermont and Wyoming. I don't think we're in this situation today. I do personally believe that this is a black issue. I do feel like this is not just a localized issue. I think this is about civil rights, about equality, and people outside of D.C., people outside of this country need to recognize what's going on over here in the nation's capital. Yeah, one of our uh, historic history writers, C.R. Gibbs, when he wrote uh, about voter oppression, he he included uh, thoughts about D.C. statehood um, as not necessarily voter oppression directly, but as one of those offshoots. So I guess you wouldn't totally disagree with him. Absolutely. I mean, I think this has ramifications that's beyond racial as well. I mean, when you want to see a fair country, where immigration system, where people are treated fairly, where there's the opportunity for people to live with a living wage. These are opportunities that the minds of D.C., one of the most progressive cities, not just racially, but just also in terms of thought, the way we think, the way we live, I think it will be very critical to have our opinion and perspective on lawmaking process. Okay. I think I saw on your website that you are raising $5,000. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the fact that this is an unseated position, we are also an unpaid position. So I'm still currently practicing as a healthcare provider, a pharmacist, but I also have a team that's carrying out my 100-day plan, which is engaging D.C. residents as well as people outside of D.C. to really be impacted by what's going on here in the nation's capital. So any funding that comes to me goes straight to my team so we can carry out our mission. Okay, and I and I believe that if they go to your website, that's where they can donate. If that's correct, we already have your website already linked to um, the broadcast and to the page. But is, is the donation link or the donation button on that page? Absolutely. My website is rep Dr. Oye, so R-E-P-D-R-O-Y-E.com. And that's the same handle for social media as well, so Instagram as well. But, yeah, you can find all the information to follow me or donate or contribute to this, um, to my 100-day plan and mission. And I guess to explain to our, our listeners who are outside of D.C. Uh, that uh, that generally uh, the shadow position isn't recognized by the U.S. Congress as being a seat, so you don't have a vote, but it's a – Thing that states have been doing since 17, or I should say territories have been doing since 1796 as they tried to become a state. So this is part of the effort to be for D.C. to become a state. And part of your job is to advocate for D.C. to become a state. So, and right now you're saying that you're talking to district residents and people outside of D.C. Uh, about these issues. And the $5,000 is to help uh, you fund your efforts. So what is one of the big efforts that's coming up to teach insiders or outsiders about the reasons why D.C. should become the 51st state? Absolutely, and thank you for that question. And our goal is beyond 5000 and it's not just the money. It's, just, it's also the attention that people are paying to our fight for D.C. statehood. And on top of that, we are also talking about other things besides statehood. Because once D.C. becomes a state, 
there are so many things we have to work on. We have to work on the reinvestment in black communities. There are a lot of companies created by returning citizens, by black women that are not getting the funding that they deserve from the local government. I'm trying to find ways to empower black banks and hopefully in the future international banks to really invest in the black community. I don't believe that gentrification is unavoidable. I believe when we do grassroots efforts, we can really improve the community. When we address recreation centers and local banks and not believe that every problem is solved by over-policing, I think we'll really truly impact the community organically. I also want to fight for single-payer healthcare. As a healthcare provider myself, I've seen the difference between people who have resources to take care of themselves and those who don't have enough money and resources to see the doctor regularly. And that really affects our healthcare outcome and the cost of healthcare. I believe it's human right. But back to your oh. question directly about, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry about so, that. Yeah. So, so what's, what's, the, what's one of the next big projects you have come up to educate people inside or outside about DC statehood? Absolutely. So I want to talk about financial literacy in the black community. And in terms of DC statehood, I'm wanting to just have a lot of interviews outside of DC, make sure people understand our fight on what's going on here in DC. I'm also going to reach out to other elected officials so they understand that people in their district are paying attention to the fight for DC statehood. Ensure that lawmakers outside of DC who actually have the impact to vote us to become the next state understand that there's an appetite throughout this country. I want to work closely with progressive organizations so we can really push our message farther than it's ever been before. Okay. And how do you want to work with them? Is it conversations? Is it panel discussions? Is it a, um, a conference? All of the above. I want to be able to reach everybody in different ways. Although we're in COVID situation right now and most of our technology, there are a lot of folks who don't get their information that way. So some people may want to see me on TV, some people may want to see me in the streets, and I'll be in both places. Okay. We only got three minutes left, and one of the subjects that we could talk about for uh, just a few seconds as you brought it up, and that is the issue of health disparities and COVID. And as a pharmacist, you've probably seen firsthand that one of the issues in D.C. in particular, too, I should say in particular, too, in D.C. and in the nation, is that um, black people tend not to rush to get the COVID vaccination. And even in Southeast DC, um, there have been efforts by the DC government to make sure that the vaccine is available. And yet there have been non-blacks crowding the uh, lines to make sure that they're, that they're there when uh, the pharmacy closes and there's extra vaccines that have to be given out and they're there to get them. So how has that affected your thought process? And it has affected it greatly. No. Go there's ahead. a lot of, you know, there's, especially in the black community, there's a lot of mistrust over vaccines. We've had a, a rough history with science being not so good to minority communities. I think the best way to overcome some of those barriers is education. Being a healthcare provider and elected official, I'm planning on having a panel to talk about the science. A lot of elected officials say, believe the science, trust the science, but it's not readily available. And Facebook and Instagram isn't huge information. So what I really want to do is use my perspective both as a black man living in Southeast, Southeast DC, being a pharmacist and elected official to bring forth other professionals in the healthcare industry to really showcase the information so people can make the best decision. Okay. I want to thank you so much for your time, and we look more for uh, the outputs of your efforts, and we hope that we're on your press on your uh, press mailings, and if anyone has any other questions for him or wants to reach him, um, if you can't find his website, you can always come to our website, and we'll be happy to either personally write to you who he is, or you can look on the website and you have connections to him. So again, uh, thank you so much, um, Representative Owaleye, Ola Owalewa, and um, we wish, 
wish you the best of luck in everything that happens in the next two years. I think it'll run again in two years. Absolutely. Thanks again for everything. For more information, please look me up at repsdroye.com and social media, Instagram, repsdroye. Thank you Dr. So Oye. Dr. Oye, thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. All right, Port of Harlem Radio ends this ends today. And again, visit us at portofharlem.net. And if you're on Facebook, please like us. And you also can follow us on Instagram. That's portofharlem.net. Thank you very much.